Welcome to another edition of the Inside Intercom podcast. This week's conversation is certainly a lively one. We'll be taking a look at how to bootstrap a business through the insights and anecdotes of our guest, Bridget Harris. Bridget, who in a previous life could be found busking Celtic folk in London's Covent Garden, is now the co-founder and CEO of You Can Book Me, a SaaS tool for easy online scheduling that she launched with her husband, Keith, in 2010. Fast forward to today, and it's raking in over 1 million ARR, is profitable, and has more than 10,000 customers, including Atlassian, Box, Indeed, and Shopify. And Bridget's done all this without taking a dime of VC funding. In a chat with Intercom's managing editor, John Collins, Bridget shares how she was able to bootstrap her way to profitability. When we got into when is good and then you can book me, those were problems that we realized we could put on a slow burn. We could solve incrementally, and we spent a lot of time on those kind of agile and lean principles. Why VC interests are not always going to align with your own. Their interests are often about bringing in a kind of a growth target, which is going to deliver a valuation and a payout for them within the timetable of their fund. But the fact is that that might not necessarily be aligned with what you could achieve in your business separately. And what lessons her busking days taught her about running a startup? You need to have a very good idea of what risk you are taking and how you define that risk and what happens if your gamble doesn't pay off and you have to face the consequences of disaster, for example. If you like what you hear and want to catch more Inside Intercom episodes, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you got a few minutes to spare, a rating or a comment in the iTunes store would go a long way in growing the show in the year to come. And now, let's hop into the studio with John Collins and Bridget Harris. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Welcome, Bridget. Hi. If you haven't used it, of course, your tool, I would describe it as a simple SaaS tool for hassle-free scheduling. Would that be a, a, a fair description? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's one of those really sort of time-old problems that people have, which is finding a time to meet. And um, You Can Book Me is, is one of the ways that you can cut out all of the, the back-and-forth email and just get something straight into your calendar. And you, you launched back in 2010. I'd say back in, it's not really that long ago. But what, what was the origin story there? What were you doing beforehand and why did you choose this problem to solve? It's a good question. I mean, it's we actually have another web application that also does a form of scheduling called When Is Good, whenisgood.net. Mm-hmm. And um, that was one of the first web apps that we built. And it's the problem it solves is how to find a group of people a time to meet. And um, we built this very simple interface with, you know, everybody fills out their times and then you, you, know, you send a link around and then by magic, the, the system will tell you what date or hour or week everybody can make. And then what we found was that people were trying to stab away at that golden spot and sort of secure it and say, well, that's the bit, you know, that's the slot I want I want to to book. Mm-hmm. And so we found that by building essentially a back-end integration with Google Calendar, people could do that. So they could select the slot and then book it into their calendars. And really very quickly, the, the, the booking side of the tool took off. And as a sort of a freemium when is good was a freemium model. So we knew very much how often people upgraded and how willing they were to upgrade. And really, the answer was they're not that willing to upgrade mm-hmm. on, a, on, a, on a tool that essentially organizes, you know, what people perceive to be something that they could also do by email. They don't really want to spend a lot of money on, on a tool helping them, even if they love using it. Whereas with You Can Book Me, because it was mainly businesses using it, they immediately wanted to pay. And so You Can Book Me, which started off as a sort of a a little sister of when is good fast became 
our main focus and um, and what we've been building on ever since. Okay, and I think even since we first talked, uh, you were kind enough to be on our, our panel in London last year when we did our world tour. I mean, even since then, you've kind of focused very much on what businesses your 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 market is. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that we have learned about scheduling, and this is kind of a more broader point about trying to find a good problem to solve, is that scheduling is a different thing to different people. And so you have businesses who want to schedule in their customers because that's the, the hour or the day that they're providing a service and they're working. So they are, you know, photographers or gardeners or beauty therapists or trainers or you know, people who are providing usually face-to-face services. And there's a whole element of e-commerce associated with that and a lot of support to the customer, the end booker themselves, that they want follow-up on. A mass market, but a very dispersed market, I imagine. Right. Well, it's small businesses. It's sort of medium, small to medium businesses. And it's a huge, huge market, but it's it's pretty tough to get into because as soon as you realise, you know, you've got the right tool for beauty therapists, you've got the wrong tool for photographers, for example. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of companies that started to use You Can Book Me in the early days. I have to confess, we had not quite anticipated it. It was a sort of thing which naturally grew because people could see that the value of Google Calendar, they were using it to book in client meetings. So recruitment, sales, customer success, you know, all of the kind of executive business to business effectively meetings. And um, a lot of companies now will use You Can Book Me and indeed other tools to sort that problem out. And people are booking demos or they're booking support calls using our tool. And then another interesting use case of You Can Book Me, which again took off very naturally in America because a lot of schools had adopted Google for education, is that schools will use us for parent-teacher conferences where they can spool out hundreds of calendars for the for each teacher to handle sort of 10 minute slots. So we actually have a very strong education and nonprofit dimension to our tool as well. Okay, that's kind of interesting. So you've kind of almost opposite ends of the spectrum, you'd think in terms of startups and, and, and tech focused folk, and then schools who generally are considered, I suppose, a little lagging in terms of, of technology at the other end of the spectrum. Well, John, they are, forgive me, but they are in the UK, and I don't know about the rest of Europe, but in the UK, certainly schools are very slow to adopt these tools. But in America, they've been using tools like this for years. I mean, the schools in America, school districts do embrace technology in a way that is genuinely enthusiastic and open to change. And so we have, you know, handled literally millions of bookings for, you know, half of the the school districts in America and in Canada and North America generally. They're very keen to streamline that process. But to an extent, you know, the, the, the problem of scheduling is so painful for so many people. Everybody is pretty much desperate to find a solution to it and we'll we'll try anything really. And despite that kind of potential market for You Can Book Me, I mean, I think an interesting aspect of your business is that you took a decision not to take VC funding along the way. What, what kind of attracted you to that maybe slightly different route these days, given that uh, venture capitalists seem to be looking for a home for money? Yeah, and that's that's true. And, and it, it was not really the case that, you know, we would never say never and we've mm-hmm. never been closed to conversations. But on the other hand, I think it, will, it wasn't an either or when we set out. I think when we when we first built the tool, and I should explain that the CTO of You Can Book Me is Keith, the developer, is my husband. And so the two of us have kind of formed a partnership over the years of building these products. And You Can Book Me, and indeed even when it's good, weren't the first products that we built. So we had previous to when is good, we had another tool that that was a survey building tool that was completely different. And we sort of tried and worked together on all sorts of digital projects. So 
we were working on digital products and various kinds of web applications for a long time before we knew we were building a business or indeed we actually had a successful product on our hand. So You Can Book Me emerged out of a lot of experience building products. And then once we built the product and we could see it was working and you have that famous product market fit and people are paying you for it, you've then got to figure out how you're actually going to make money. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, we started to build a company around the fact that we could make money and we could be profitable. So now, you know, we've got a a one million plus ARR to our name and we're profitable. So we've done we've we've kind of taken a long view about how to build from an idea through to a product, through to making money, through to a company. And along the way, the the VC intervention might have helped, could have helped. I mean, I'm not saying that that there's not companies that haven't been hugely um, helped by by taking on investment. But for us it always felt like the wrong moment for, for, for a number of reasons. I mean, I think one of the benefits of venture capital I've seen sort of even at Intercom is that it opens up this network of people that, you know, your, your VCs will open up their, their little black book for you. There's other people in their portfolios, you know, companies who've been through similar sort of problems. As someone who's bootstrapped, do you ever find that's a, a challenge getting, you know, those sources of guidance or that network that can, can help you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that there is certainly a a risk that if you're bootstrapped and if you're small, then you can become quite insular. And particularly if you're, um, I mean, for me and Keith, we're more at risk because we're a married couple. Mm-hmm. So you can get very very personal, very insular, and 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 you know, the kind of in some ways the, the the one direction you could go in is a, is what they call a lifestyle business, where you're not really interested in talking to anybody else, and you just want to build something that is going to work for you, and it, you're not referencing the outside world particularly. Um, as it happens, what we do is, well, I, I recognise that and therefore deliberately try to protect us from a kind of an insular perspective. So you do what everybody does, you read loads of books. Um, <laughs> what you'll find often is that once you've got past some advice and business case studies which are around companies that did go down a course of rounds of funding, all business advice really comes down to the same basic principle, which is how are you going to make money and how are you not going to, you know, fall over. So so you you read all of those books, you follow the blogs, you go to conferences, you reach out to people. As I said, I've been very open to when VCs have contacted me, I always chat to them. It's always good to get their perspective and to see if a conversation, you know, it sort of is, is going to go anywhere. And we do have some longstanding advisors who've seen us through over the years, many a time when me and Keith have wondered what on earth we're doing. And when you find yourself trying to explain how you've decided to solve a problem to somebody else who you trust and who you admire, and you realise that you sound a bit ridiculous you know you think okay. oh better. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound right I've got to I've got to figure that out and so you know we, we're always always learning and hoping and you know the way we have built the culture inside the company as well we've hired lots of people who have come with them lots of experience of working with other companies and we're very open that you know we need to learn as a company and as a team together about how to to grow and not take anything you know for granted so I think that just the fact that we don't have the external board of investors doesn't mean to say that we're not open to you know external ideas and indeed I would probably you know say that there is some there is some skepticism sometimes about the advice that VCs are going to give you because of course their interests are not necessarily aligned to your interests their interests are often about 
bringing in a kind of a growth target, which is going to deliver a valuation and a payout for them within the timetable of their fund. So it was just perfectly, I mean, they're very open about that. It's not like mm-hmm. that's a secret. But the fact is that that might not necessarily be aligned with what you could achieve in your business separately. So I think, put it a different way, VC's advice is not always going to be the best advice for your business. And so if you have a, your interest in running your business isn't always in the interest of what VCs are trying to achieve. Sure. We hear a lot of people talking these days about uh, side projects and we've we've had people on the podcast talk about the benefit of side projects as a way to sort of test ideas while you've still got the day job. It sounds like uh, yourself and Keith were doing that way back before it was uh, before people in Silicon Valley had embraced the idea. I mean, basically, you, you got to try a number of a, a number of different models and, and I suppose get, get your experience, make your mistakes before you, you, you bet everything on uh, you can book me. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said before, we had two or three web applications that we built and we always had an ambition to build a web application that was going to be successful, that people were going to use and people were going to give us money. So we were motivated by building a product that was going to make money. And obviously you do that by adding value to people's lives. You solve their problems, you identify problems and you solve them in a way that you think is going to be, you know, interesting, unique and attractive. And then the people will give you the money for it. So that's what we always set out to do. And we did certainly have times when we realized that our technology wasn't appropriate. You know, we built the survey building tool. It was just before a whole load of the client side technologies came out. So ours was very, very clunky and, you know, it wasn't swishy swashy. It wasn't sort of drag and drop like woofoo forms and that kind of thing. And you start to think, well, I think this problem that we've chosen is just too big to, to bite off. And there I would say, you know, about VC funding, if you pick a problem which is actually too big for you to solve by yourself, then of course you need to reach out and work with a team of people and have some financial backing if you're absolutely sure you can solve it. Whereas me and Keith saw survey building is not a problem we could solve ourselves. Whereas when we got into when is good and then you can book me, those were problems that we realized we could put on a slow burn. We could solve incrementally. And we spent a lot of time on those kind of agile and lean principles of learning from customers and adapting the tool based on their feedback. And certainly in the last couple of years, as I said, we've moved towards quite a big turnover, but also being profitable and hired quite a few people. You know, what we're interested in now and what we're doing now is very different to what we were doing two or three years ago. Sure. I mean, you've said in the past, uh, you've spoken a lot about hiring. I know you've spoken at conferences and stuff about it. But I think an interesting aspect of it is obviously you're hiring remotely. I mean, you've you've made that a strength rather than a weakness. I mean, you're based just outside London. So you said yourself, it might be hard to attract people to work just outside London. But then you've you've kind of turned to, to remote hiring as a, as a strength of the company. Absolutely. And I would say that that definitely emerged as a result of our experience of running the company and running the product and deciding what we needed to do, which happened at a much slower pace than if we'd taken on VC. So if we'd taken on VC three or four years ago, we probably would have just hired a whole load of people and expected them to come and work for us in Bedford and got an office and done all that, or maybe moved to London, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you kind of, you do the playbook, you do what's expected. And because we didn't follow that course, as we started to hire people, it became obvious that um, there's plenty of talent around the world who want to work for a company like ours, and um, we could attract them in on on other you, you know other measures like the technology, the product, the thing, the kind of things that we're trying to achieve. And actually, the, the, where lo, we were sort of location neutral, really, and and we still are. So as a result of that, we've hired. We've got a couple of people in the U.S. We've got two people in Spain. We have somebody in Germany, and you know, and, and quite a few people in the U.K. And everybody is spread about. And then what we do is every year we come together, we've just booked it actually this this year in Portugal, and we come together face to face 
you know, probably sometimes two or three times a year, depending on what we need to do. But we've built up that remote company very naturally alongside the way we've hired people in. So really, once we know what kind of company we're building, you then start looking for the people who you know are going to fit into that culture. So I suppose one of the things about hiring people remotely, obviously, is that they have to manage themselves. It's, it's maybe harder to mentor them. Does that kind of preclude certain types of people? I'm thinking particularly, is it, is it harder to bring on, say, more junior people when, you, when you're doing it remotely? Yeah, definitely. And um, there is no real answer to this. I've heard this from quite a few companies that work remotely, that, there, that if you want to bring on an intern or a, you know, sort of a trainee or a young young engineer or somebody who needs more support, it's very difficult to do that over the internet web. You have to, you know, the face-to-face showing them and monitoring them is the only thing. And so really the, the, the consequences is that we don't do that very much. We have had a few interns and young people working for us in Bedford and that works, but mm-hmm. it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's sporadic. It's not something that we've invested in. And it's something I would like, it's a problem I'd quite like to crack because I, I don't think that what we're doing at the moment is going to continue to be super unusual. I think it's actually very pragmatic way of attracting high quality people who want to work for you around the world. And not, and it's not necessarily a cost saving thing. It's not something to do with trying to buy cheap labor in. We mm-hmm. hire all the people that we, you know, we employ everybody directly. So we're set up as employers in the UK, in Spain and in the US and in Ireland. You know, we, we do directly employ people and we give them all of the benefits of working for a company full time. Um, and I think that is something which more and more companies will see there's a benefit to, not least because, you know, the price of office rentals in places like London are just sky high. But also going back to your earlier point about managing people, really, it is incumbent on us to, to, to build a company where we have a culture of expectation of high work, productivity, and collaboration, which doesn't rely on you sort of eyeballing people every day and glaring at them and making them work. You know, I don't think that should, should not be the instrument by which we are successful. Um, we should be successful because people are motivated when they work for us to do their jobs. Interestingly, I mean, do you think that's more a technology problem that needs to be cracked, i.e. maybe VR or something? Or is it more like you said there, perhaps like cultural and social issues that people just aren't used to remote working? And at the moment, it's only certain kind of people that are willing to take the plunge or are willing to organize themselves that way. I think it's definitely, well, it's a sort of, a, the tools are all there. Yes. I mean, my God, if we wanted to start using VR, um, that would be pretty crazy. But we could, <laughs> I guess we could. But there's plenty of tools fairly invasive tools I think you know there's some tools where everybody's got a webcam and you can just click on the link and you can get a screenshot of everybody at their desks at any given point so mm-hmm. so if you want you could have open channels of through webcams all the time if you wanted to eyeball people but I think it's much more of a human side to it so it requires so we have also in 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 the company a a default transparency which again is lots of companies like buffer and others have you know have advocated and I really believe in it so if you have that kind of belief that as a company and as founders, we can encourage everybody to be open and honest and collaborative about what we're trying to achieve, i.e. not hierarchical or trying to hide information yourself in order to promote yourself or your own interests against somebody else's, but instead everybody takes the shared credit. If that's part of your culture and then also transparency is part of the way you communicate, then remote working should naturally sort of fit in with that because we want to share stuff on our chat channels and um, online shared documents. And, you know, we use video a lot when we're having meetings. So 
everything is naturally defaulted to sharing with people. So therefore, it really doesn't matter. In fact, sometimes it can be a bit of a hassle if everybody's in the same office. We get very quiet and it's a bit weird and we actually stop communicating because everybody's in the office and nobody shares anything on chat. So then we sort of start to lose touch, ironically. So so face-to-face is basically we're using it for a different purpose. We use face-to-face stuff with our team for much more about social engagement and brainstorming and where, you know, you want to kind of get that team bonding. But day-to-day collaboration, it actually works better if you're using the tools. So you need to be a good communicator. You need to be open and happy to communicate. You mentioned a number of tools there, chat, uh, you know, shared files, uh, video. I noticed you didn't mention email. I understand you've banned email as an internal communication <laughs> tool at uh, You Can Book Me. Why, why ban email? <laughs> Well, I, I send an email. When anybody starts, I send them an email to say, look, this is how we communicate. This is our culture. These are our priorities. And by the way, don't email us. Cause, <laughs> um, and I think it's, so it's not necessarily a, a ban. It's more we encourage and, and essentially incentivize use of other, all these other tools. So nobody would think to send anybody an email because it's a very spur type of communication. So obviously I use email for external. You know, any of us that have externally facing jobs, we use email. And um I, I mean, I only use email with with colleagues, probably when we're emailing them about some HR um, matter, you know, something that's personal and confidential. I think that's probably a good indication of what email is good for, which is when it's got to be one to one personal and secure and confidential, use email. It's a bit um, like but, the, actually letters like I mean, we've, we've right. got to the stage where they are like digital letters. Right, exactly. Um, I think that, first of all, reply all drives me crazy because, (laughs) you know, you're kind of, if you're stuck on a reply all list, you can't stop people from spamming you. But I think there's also a bit of a passive aggressive thing that kind of crept up, which is the BCC line. And, you know, if I BCC somebody, and even if I'm sending an external email, what I've noticed, which I think is good practice, is if somebody starts off on an email thread, but you know, you want them to know that you've replied, but you don't want to spam them, you BCC them and you tell everybody you've BCC'd this person. But I think in office environments, when you start being BCC'd into things, people are creating secret communication channels, which I think can be quite toxic. And so really, it's it's more to do with, in our company, you know, we're a young company, and um, none of us want to work for big corporate organizations. And um, we've all worked in those, and we all know that it's it can become toxic. And so we just choose not to go there. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, it's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. 
I'm chatting to Bridget Harris, CEO of You Can Book Me. Bridget, what role does culture play when you're a remote company? Or I suppose, what increased role does it play? Because I'm sure it must be really, really key. And I suppose the stakes are higher. It's, it's harder to build that culture, I suppose, if everyone is in different locations. Well, I think it, it, it's kind of a, a basket of what I've just said before, which is the, the transparency and the openness and the way that we're building the product and we're choosing to interact with our customers and how we're managing things. All of that attracts a certain type of person who wants to work for us. I mean, and going back to being bootstrapped, you know, we have had very open conversations with everybody in the company about how we make money, how much everybody gets paid, what the prospects of the company are, you know, and and hopefully as the company continues to be successful and profitable, those profits can go back into people's pockets. So it's we have a kind of a jam today, you know, philosophy. And so people buy into that. And it's and it is different to offering, you know, the usual share options or um, that kind of structural benefit from being part of a big company. Now, in return, we're obviously asking people to not exactly take a chance with us because we're pretty stable. But it's it's more to do with, you know, some people have worked for us. And they, they end up not wanting to, they realize that a small company doesn't work out for them. You know, they don't they don't work out where you're in a, in a very small fishbowl, really, with 10 other people. Other people have really thrived and, you know, love their jobs. And it is actually amazingly, it's one of the best things about my job when, you know, spontaneously some people on, on HipChat will start congratulating themselves about how much they really like their jobs. <laughs> um, because, you know, it's not something, again, that me and Keith really expected to do when we set out, when we were building You Can Book Me, we were building a product that we wanted to sell to people. Three, four years later, we've now built a company that people work for and that we are, you know, we're having a much bigger conversation with the world about it. And and so the culture inside does come from me and Keith originally, I guess, but also the way we have discussed with the people who've joined us about how they want to continue to build You Can Book Me as a company. Because as we grow and hire more people, I realize you need to be pretty sure and articulate about what it is. So for example, we have, um, I mean, many companies have this, we have a, a culture deck, you know, we have a set of slides, which have bullet points covering the things that we aspire to, the way we like communicating the way we like solving problems and the things that we can default to when we're uncertain. So I think when you come across something, especially in an HR situation where you realize something didn't go the way you you were happy with, you've got a document to refer to to say, look, this is how we are. This is how we want to be. And that wasn't consistent yeah. or this is not going to work out. Uh, if there is a typical route into into the world of tech, but certainly you, you've had some, some interesting other career paths before uh, you got into software. Particularly interesting was you you busked, you played music in, in Covent Garden. Yeah. What did that kind <laughs> of era of your life teach you about running a startup or have you brought anything with you from then? Oh, definitely. I mean, my goodness, that that kind of early, you know, entrepreneurial spirit, I would probably see it now in retrospect, <laughs> definitely taught me a lot about about the, you know, the way I see my role now. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I talked about this earlier in one of the, my conference presentations, because I'd, I'd sort of, I hadn't realized there was such a strong analogy, but I think there is really, which is that when you when you busk for the first time, and I did it when I was 14, wow. and it was really as a, a way to make money. And at my first pitch was in Victoria Station in London. And um, when you put your case down, I play the fiddle, you put the case down and you start playing, you know, you've got absolutely no idea if somebody's going to give you money or not. You know, you've, mm-hmm. you've decided to produce, you know, a service for somebody playing a tune as they walk along. And if they put money into your case, well, in fact, the first time somebody put money into my case, it was just the best feeling, you know, that yeah. I had 
I had pleased somebody and that they're prepared to pay for it. And then, you know, after that, you you realize that you've got you, you do need to have confidence. You do need to. It's quite nerve wracking to start playing in public. And 25 years ago when I was busking, it was a lot more scrappy than it is now. I mean, now they have formalized pitches. But where, when I was playing, you know, you would just walk along and find an open space in the tube system and, and, and start playing. And then you would have pitches for an hour and other buskers would come along. So you learn a lot to deal with people and and, you know, essentially hold your own when you're in difficulties. Mm. I think that the, the longer term analogy is that the, the biggest thing I've learned about, about running a business is that you have to understand risk. I mean, you really have to understand risk. You can't just, I, I think that there's a lot of time, there's a lot of rhetoric that people will talk about business visionaries and leaders and, you know, what, what what's the magic dust to do with Richard Branson or how is every, you know, why do people do this in the first place? And my own take on it is that you you need to have a very good idea of what risk you're taking and how you define that risk and what happens if your gamble doesn't pay off and you have to face the consequences of disaster, for example. So having that kind of ability to not exactly know where you're going or, or sort of trust to an outcome that you're hoping is going to work based on you know your own hard work, then it's a good toolkit for you. And I think when I was busking, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You sit down, I, I still play now. I play in an Irish session band in, in, in my local pub. And, you know, you're, you're sitting there and you're listening to other people and you don't know what tunes you're about to play. And then you, somebody else leads into something else and you start playing that and then you start learning new tunes. And, you know, you're, you're, it's a performance, but it's a performance which has a, an edge to it because yeah. you don't exactly know what's going to happen. And I think that as a musician, I'm, that, I'm very comfortable with that kind of music. And I think that that's how I've basically run the company as well since I took over in 2012 I became the CEO to run the company because the company needed leadership and as I've learned along the way it's been using those kind of busking skills like you 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 know you hustle sometimes sometimes you play really I mean you have to you have to be able to play (laughs) (laughs) your tunes have to sound good I suppose (laughs) yeah there's no hiding from that Uh, (laughs) before you can book me you're you're heavily involved in politics I think you most recently served as an advisor to the deputy prime minister in the UK you did have some, I suppose, critical things to say about politics in Westminster when you left that world. But anything you, you, you think people in software can learn from it? Yeah, I've been thinking about this question, John, because, you know, I would I've got a, there's a lot that Westminster could learn about software. And I must say that when I got my, my last job, when I worked as a special advisor, I'd been doing a lot of work, as I said, with, you know, me and Keith have been working together for a long time. You know, literally for 15 years, we've been working together on digital projects. So I knew I was already keen on tech and on the potential for tech a long time before I got this job as a special advisor. And I had run sort of in parallel to working with Keith. I had a whole lot of other political jobs as well, working in Parliament. And so I came to that job knowing full well how, you know, in the last bastion of um, old-fashioned methods that happens in Westminster. But what could software learn from Westminster? I think I can only say is to basically learn from all of their mistakes. That's the <laughs> only thing they can learn. You know, there's there's really very little, I must say, there's very little that the current political systems in not just the UK, but in many countries is serving the people. I mean, I think that technology is is got a, I mean, there's all sorts of evils to do with the technology as well. Mm. But technology is democratic, it can give power to people, it, you know, it can be judged, it can be disrupted, it can be challenged, and it can be harnessed. And it's, so it's an amazing opportunity for growth and, you know, good things to happen in, in society. Whereas Westminster and Whitehall really trudge along within very, very old-fashioned methods and ideologies around holding 
close information away from people, trying to basically produce the best outcome from the least number of people involved in a decision, which is kind of at the antithesis to how software works. So yeah, I, would, I, I really couldn't say much more than that, that software can just look at that system and, and take it on, disrupt okay. it. And uh, speaking of disruption, what's, uh, what's next for You Can Book Me? What are you hoping to disrupt this year? We are really happy with our growth as a company because, you know, at times it has been very uncertain whether things are going to take off a few years ago. And so it's a very exciting year for us because, as I said, we're now fully in the world of being a profitable business and having kind of a mature team now. So this year we are we're always reinvesting and re-engineering and supporting our tools so that it gets better for the people who love it and want to use it. And then we just want to grow more into those markets, into those companies who are discovering that, you know, the old fashioned email way of dealing with appointments is just starting to die. And as people, you know, realize and they get experience booking appointments, they know it's available and then they start asking for it. And more and more companies want to use it. And there's not just us, there's quite a few other really great competitors out there who are doing similar things to us. And so essentially for us, it's like game on, you know, we can take them on and we can take on the group of companies there that aren't currently using us and, and you know, pushing the case for online scheduling and, and having fun, at, at, you know, along the way, I think. Excellent. Well, listen, best of luck with the Bridget. And as usual, a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much, John. Cheers. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com. <laughs>